KBLA Talk 1580. So excited to have joining me this morning, this man born in El Paso, Texas, but he grew up in Watts and the East L.A. area where his family faced poverty and discrimination, a gang member and drug user by the age of 12. By the time he turned 18, he had lost 25 of his friends to gang violence, drug overdoses, shootings, and suicide. Wrote a couple of autobiographical accounts of his experiences with gang violence and addiction. It Calls You Back, an odyssey through love, addiction, revolutions, and healing. Um, And always running La Vida Loca Gang Days in L.A. He's a poet, a journalist, a scholar, an indigenous practitioner, and a gubernatorial candidate. Uh, former gubernatorial candidate, Luis J. Rodriguez. Good morning. Dominique, good morning. It's always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, and, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm enjoying your, your, uh, your poetry. I finally started doubling down and reading some more of your poetry, and it's, oh, oh, it's, uh, it's really fun to read. It's, yeah. Well, it's important to point out, I've told you, but I think it's important that uh, to, to know um, your dad was an influence. And, um, of course, even your mom, I mean, all the poets of that period, the 60s, um, the 70s, you know, the, the black generation, remember that whole, whole mess of great poets that were coming out of uh, all these communities? I got influenced by them as a young uh, homeless gang member going to the library downtown picking up books and picked up books uh, by Leroy Jones and Nikki Giovanni and Don Lee and all kinds of people that were just putting out the most amazing things. So, yeah, so my poetry has a trajectory with with all that, yeah. Wow. You, when you describe yourself as a young and homeless in L.A., I'm sure that, I mean, I, I don't know because... I'm not in the room, but I know you talk to a lot of young people that are in similar situations to where you were coming up yeah. and you really help a lot of young people. Do you think, is it, is it them being able to lock in their imaginations on the journey that you've taken from where, you know, they might be now to where you are now? Well, I think so. Cause you know, um, I was, um, homeless for three years as a teenager and, um, lost on, on heroin uh, mugging people, but my salvation was that library. <laughs> that was my refuge. I spent hours there and reading, expanding your mind, like what Malcolm X did, what everybody who has been through that books becomes their one way out the door. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, and I tell people, okay, because a lot of people don't read books anymore. Books don't have the same. But I tell people the real important thing is to find your what your gifts are, what your passions are, what what do you feel deeply about? That's what's going to save you. It happened to be me words, and um, so I just I just tell them, you know, there is a way out of all these things. Well, we're all in prisons in some form or the other, especially if you're on drugs, if you're in the street, if whatever it might be. But the liberation starts with your mind. Yeah, the liberation starts with your mind. I love that. That's so true. Um. When you are in that situation, you know, as a young person, I'm sure you never imagined, you know, your 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 words being made into movies and going all around the world yeah. and winning tons of uh, different literary um, and social accolades. 
right? And I think because all our, our, our imaginations, because of capitalism, because of the bottom line, because of doggy dog, the world we're in, is get, gets very small. We have no imagination. When you're in the street, you're the least imaginative person you can be. You're just trying to survive. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you don't think about the next day or the future. You just think about how I'm going to make it today. And that's your imagination is closed. And so I think expanding your imagination, the capacity to always imagine first and then think about the ways to make that real is the way to go. And we got to teach. I guess we got to teach our kids too. They, they're, they're losing that. Even if they're in the video games or, or watching TV or movies, they're, they're, they're getting somebody else's imagination. You know what I'm saying? But to think of your own. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think that there's, um, there's room, I think there's room for um, growth there. Because like, I remember when I was a kid, mm -hmm. you know, we would, whatever, we'd be watching, we'd be into Spider-Man or whatever, but we would still put our own spin on it. You know, we make up our yeah, own, yeah, we absolutely. make up our own super villain or, you know, I, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. I just, well, I, that's what books, yeah. Yeah. Books do the same thing. I'm reading other people's stories. But you're right. They sparked the idea somewhere there that maybe I had a story, you know, yeah. that maybe my story was important. So, no, you're absolutely right. All those things can help get that going. But we do need to help people go that way, right. know how to expand it and be more imaginative in, in, in their world and their life. My mom said the ultimate war is, uh, is the war of the imagination. You know, yeah, in, in yeah. one of her poems that all others are subsumed by it. And right. um, it's funny you say that about books because I told my kid, you know, I, I used, you used to read all the time. I used to see you reading books all the time. I don't see you reading anymore. Mm -hmm. Ever since you gotten on that phone, and my yeah. child looked at me and said, I'd be, I'd be reading books on this phone. He <laughs> <It> started <laughs> listing books that he had read well, on the phone, and then I just was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's a new, it's a new world. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what I they're know. doing on that phone. You know, it could be anything from... Yeah. Like pouring to Shakespeare, it's all available right there. No, I know, I know, but you know, it, I, I'm not fighting that world. I'm saying, you know, neither are you. I think we're just getting aware that the world changes. But what what doesn't change, I think, is sparking that spirit yeah. of everyone, getting them going on their own initiatives. You know, uh, yeah, the world will start you. Others reading, maybe there's a mentor. You know, maybe there's a teacher. Who knows? Things can start you going, but then you got to get your own, you know, engines going. <laughs> you got to get your own initiative and you got to get your own drive. Uh, that's, I think, the important point. Uh, we're living in a world, like you're saying, there's no imagination. War, the terrible things that's going on in Gaza, the terrible things that's going on in the inner cities, in our communities, here in L.A., uh, there's no imagination. There's these policies that people come up with. A war constantly is an unimaginative endeavor. You know, mm. just, and that's where we're at. We're in a war economy. We've been in a war economy uh, since the country was founded. And um, and we're still living that. And that destroys a lot of powerful, imaginative ways to go. You know, we just came out of this um, writer's strike and the actor's strike. And, right. you know, one of the big things that we, that's really pretty much in some ways unfinished business, at least for the actors, I think for the writers too, based on what I know of their contract, is the the, the issue of artificial intelligence. It could be right. artificial imagination. We could, you know, give it a different right. a different name for that moniker, artificial imagination, because 
for me, one of the things is not that I'm afraid of people using these tools, but if you can Xerox copy my essence, my soul, mm. my, mm. um, my ashe, then, then it's almost like you're robbing me of my humanity in some kind of way. Well, I think that's what, that's why we feel the way we do. We feel alienated. We feel that our humanity is at the table. It's being chopped up. And, and I think what's important to point out is that, um, that AI, any technology, indigenous way of thinking, and I'm talking about indigenous from Africa through Asia to the so-called Americas, you know, they always have one idea. Technology is good in the sense you got to have technology, but you always make sure it's in accord with nature. And that's an important thing to bring out because that's what my indigenous elders and teachers have told me. All intelligent technology has got to be in accord with nature. And there's four natures that we're talking about. The real nature, the world around us, make sure the world's clean and safe and, and it's not overwrought, you know. But also our own nature is people, human beings, our particular natures. We've got to make sure it's in accord with what our dreams and hopes and aspirations might be. Uh, also the nature of relationships. Whatever we do shouldn't hurt nobody, you know, shouldn't hurt others, shouldn't be against anybody. Um, that's an important part of it. But the other one is in accord with, with the divine. However you think of the divine, however you think about a spirit beyond the world that we're in, that's the four key connections that our technology should be taking account. This is indigenous people teaching me this. You know what I'm saying? Uh, what we need to do in this world. And I like to present that to the world because I think it's a guide for what we do. Otherwise, as you're saying, the capitalism, it doesn't care. It's always, you know, the next Jane, the profit thing, the thing that's going to expand. Capitalism has to expand, even though it's reached its limits. It, it, it's the thing about it is that it has to expand no matter what, and it will destroy people and destroy the planet just to keep expanding. This concept of infinite expansion or infinite profitability. Um, right, right. And and when you say it's reached its limit, capitalism has reached its limit. What do you mean by that? Well, the world is already, I mean, it's taking so much minerals from the earth. The earth has already got the, the you know, um, you know, the climate changes and everything. We're already, we're already at a point where, you know, if we don't deindustrialize, and I mean industrial in the sense of just taking stuff from the earth and throwing it back in a, in a just poisonous way, um, we're not going to last very long. Now, I'm not one of these doomsayers, and right now, you know, we're going to all die. I am saying there's ways to go to change it, and we probably have a lot of leeway still. But I would say that that's one of the things that we don't. Well, it's it's there has to be limits. The good thing about nature, it teaches you that the limits are actually how you become free. Mm. Understanding its laws and its limits is how you end up being free. Like if you wanted to fly. You have to understand the, the laws of aerodynamics. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't just jump up and fly. But obviously, we got planes. We got what do we do as human beings? We figured out what are the laws of aerodynamics? How air and wind and ground and gravity, everything works, so that we can create ways that we can fly. Uh, I'm not against any of that. I'm just saying we work with the limits that nature gives us, and within those limits, we actually become freer than we could have imagined. But if we start tearing apart everything, we're not free. We're actually captivated. 
And it's interesting when we talk about technology that is, you know, in accord with nature, most of us can't imagine at this point functioning without our cell phones. And even as the war in Gaza or conflict or whatever you want to call that situation is raging, a lot of us are not necessarily focused on the destruction and war in the Congo, which is a lot based on the minerals we need for our cell phones. So how do you... There you go. How do you get to, you know, technology in accord with nature when you have a situation like what's going on in Congo? Well, the Congo situation is like the biggest, largest exploitation of human beings right now, currently in the world. And that's what I think we have to look at. If we're going to extract from nature, we got to do it again, adequately, properly, and in accord. And one of the accordances is that, how does it affect others? If you're going to use, they got babies, they got children working for nothing, picking that cobalt or whatever it is that they have to get. And, and, the Congo, and the Congo is not only becoming more impoverished, they're fighting over the little bit there is. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's what capitalism does. It, it, it's not like people shouldn't work and people shouldn't get, but they don't give you enough adequacy. Like, we don't have enough to survive. And look at, look at L.A., the, one of the 10 richest cities in the world. And there are encampments still. I get it. They're trying to take them out, but they're not getting rid of, cap- of homelessness. They're just pushing it around. You know what I'm saying? And the point is, how how can you have that when you have all this wealth everywhere? You can look around you, and next to a big bank building is an encampment. Next to Hollywood, you know, all the streets there, uh, the entertainment capital of the world, encampment. That's what I think we have to look at. It's the same thing in the Congo. How do we abstract these things that we may need without impoverishing and destroying the humanity of people uh, that are there? But also, in many ways, as you're pointing out, we're caught in it. We're part of that web. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of questions around that. Of course, we are not only um, one of the richest cities in the world, a state that is uh, wealthy enough to actually be one of the top nations if it if it was right. ranked by economy. So it, it's shameful. Um, and so, what do those solutions look like? I know that um, there is an interesting article on the cover of the L.A. Times today talking about how California and the Western states have made it difficult to move encampments because you have to offer people housing, and they're arguing that it now is tying the hands of the cities so that um, they don't have the ability to move people out into um, housing. But at the same time, you know the the advocates are saying, look, if you just had permanent supportive housing uh, and universal basic income, you wouldn't have to worry about whether or not it's legal or not legal to sleep on a sidewalk. I want to get your reaction to that when we continue. We're talking with Luis Rodriguez, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. The conversation continues right now now, with Dominic DePrima on First Things First. First. Uh, And we are talking with Luis J. Rodriguez. He is the proprietor, along with his wife, of Tia Chucha's um, Cultural Center and Bookstore in the Valley in Los Angeles. You should uh, go online. Is it tiachuchas.org? Is that tiachucha.org? That's right. tiachucha.org. T-I-A-C-U-C-H-U-C-H-A. Dot org. 
Yes, thank you. <laughs> and you can find out about the great stuff they do there, um, poetry readings and so, so much more. So I was asking about the, the unhoused and this argument that um, because California and the Western states uh, have a lot of limits about, you know, anti-camping rules and the fact that, y- in mo- you know, you have to offer housing to the unhoused before uh, you can just move an encampment that it's made right. it tougher uh, to clean up the streets. Yeah, but part of the problem is that what's limiting us is in nature, which, again, we can work around in that law of nature. It's capitalism again. It's a system that's made up. It's a total system that's totally made up for the benefit of a few. That's basically what capitalism is. And you can see it every day. A few are really benefiting from capitalism. And many, and most of us are not. Um, Even if you're in so-called middle class, you're always worried whether you're going to have enough to keep going. Inflation goes up. You're never going to be in good shape. Capitalism is not the right laws to follow. You know what I'm saying? And and the laws of housing is that you you don't just have landlords and a few people that own homes, which I I have a home. Uh, Others, are you talking about corporate developers? You're talking about these big corporations that have taken home as a housing, flipped them, fixed them a little bit, flipped them at a higher price, and it keeps going and going and going. These are corporate that go and buy a whole mess of homes at once and start. And that's what you're dealing with is the big corporate control of housing. And so the you can't live in L.A., as you know. I have three grown men's sons. I love them. They're great. They live with me at home with my wife and me. Um, they're working. They're trying to make it to contribute, but they can't get out and find an apartment for themselves. One of them lives with his girlfriend uh, in the back house. In other words, that's what we have to do in L.A., just to survive here. All my family, working class group, Watts and East L.A. area, they're all in Idaho. They wow. Moved out. They, can't, they can't live in L.A. They're all working class. They don't went to college. None of my, I'm, my daughter is the only one to finish college, uh, but... No, none of them. And they're good people. They just cannot live, afford to live in L.A. And they would be homeless, except that they went and found lower prices somewhere in Idaho, which I understand is going up high, too. Living in Idaho, it's easy. So well, what I'm saying is that's what's, what's what's hurting us. Housing should should be a right, a human right. you got to have a home. you got to have food. And yet food, the price of groceries went up almost 100% since the last time I we went and shopped. Um, so the point is food, housing, um, uh, you know, the basic healthcare yeah. be part of a capitalist law. You yeah. know what I'm saying? People yeah. should have access to them, but no, we're living in a world where everything has to be paid for. Otherwise you can't survive. You can't live in this world without paying your way through. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been, I've been a long time proponent of a system where you, there's a, where there's a, a floor that no one goes mm-hmm. beneath, right. which is, you know, it right. could be small, but a, a place to live, you know, universal right. health care and a universal basic yeah. income so that no one is starving yeah. on the streets. Now, to me, if you want to be ambitious and build beyond that, you should have the ability to do so. But yeah. we shouldn't have people with colostomy bags suffering on sidewalks, right. which we do have. That's in LA exactly now. right. And not just in That's L.A., exactly right. because this new data shows yeah. that we're currently at the highest level of unhoused people nationally that we have been since 2006 when we started tracking it. Yeah, and 50% are black. 
when the population of black people was at 12%, I forget what the numbers are now, but it's it's amazing. It's yeah. History has taken us here. History. That's why people can't deny the history. History has put us in this place. And history has also made sure that the majority of the people who are impoverished, the vast majority or getting majority is black. Um, and the other ones are brown, whatever, you know, might be. And then, of course, poor white people. But the point is, you're right. We shouldn't have a world in which people are allowed to starve. Yeah. You know, even if they wanted to starve, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you want to go on a hunger yeah. strike, that's but that's your agency to do so. But right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. different. Um, yeah. You mentioned, you know, we yeah. only have a minute and a half here. You mentioned that before news, traffic, and sports, then we'll continue. The um, wisdom that you're getting from indigenous elders. And I think sometimes we don't make the connection between uh, Mexican, Mexican, uh, indigenous, like the American society, especially um, mainstream society, loves like Native Americans in theory, but can't stand Latinos in theory. And I just wanted you to explain why you, why, what is that connection to these indigenous elders and you, you a Chicano? (laughs) Yeah, and most Mexicans, have indigenous roots one way or the other. Right. Now, there's about 27 million that still are tribal in Mexico. Um, and now they're being recognized. You know, Mexico just recently officially made 68 languages, official languages of Mexico. Spanish is not the only species. I did not language. know that. That's deep. Yeah. It's really a big, big jump that they recognize 68 variants, even though there's about 300 languages, 68 variants are now officially languages. This is a big change. They're also recognizing, of course, in Mexico, the, the Afro-Mexican part, you know, that, that always was forgotten and, and, and now they're paying attention. There's a few changes there to recognize. In this country, we need to recognize that when Mexicans and Central Americans, others, of course, uh, from the Americas that were here, uh, we're not really immigrants like from other parts of the world. We have stakes and roots in this very land. Uh, that's why one of my books is called From Our Land to Our Land, because when I was born, we went from Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. My mom went across the International Bridge to El Paso, Texas, to have me born. But that's all part of the Chihuahuan Desert. And the Radamari people, where my mom has roots from, with, have been there for 10,000 years. So we went from our land to our land. You know what I'm saying? I across do. the border, it's only been there 106 years when I was born. Uh, the border is there. Everybody recognizes it, but it's made up. It's our land to our land. So I'm trying to get people to understand Mexicans come in all races, as you know, come in all colors. So it's not, but for the majority and many of them, especially the brown skin one, their roots are with this land, like other Native peoples. And it doesn't mean we're better than anybody. Okay, Luis, uh, we'll continue the conversation after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 wishes you a Christmas season that is merry and bright. bright. Happy holidays. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. At KBLA Talk 1580, we do more than just talk. Hello, Joe, you're up. Welcome. We're unapologetically progressive and we don't black down. We don't, and neither does Luis J. Rodriguez. He's a poet, an activist, a former gubernatorial candidate, and so much more, uh, an indigenous scholar. 
you were just breaking down the connections between, you know, the people we think of as Mexican, whether they be Chicano, i.e., you know, uh, California or U.S. Um, Mexican or Latino people and the indigenous people of North America. And I, you know, I argue that we often don't make the connection. We don't connect the dots. Um, and you also mentioned the the African presence or black presence in Mexico with some called the third root, el tercer raíz, that um, happened pre our enslavement, but also because Mexico abolished the slave trade, I think it was 50 years before the U.S., so there were many black Americans who fled into Mexico were not deported and uh, pretty much integrated into the population through intermarriage and such. Right. Right. There was an underground railroad going south. Yeah. That a lot of people don't know about. But yeah. And I and, and we just point this out now, not to think that we're better than anybody or that we should be over anybody. It's just to point out that it's a, um, this made up fabricated idea of nation, of country, of who has power who doesn't, is what we have to dismantle. Every one of us as human beings should have, a, like you say, a floor, an adequate sense that we have a right to be here, that we should be taken care of. There should be a floor of making sure everybody's well-being. It's called shared well-being. And that's an indigenous thought, but it really isn't. It's really part of every religion. It's part of every culture. Shared well-being, but we've lost it. Capitalism, the way it is now, is not about shared well-being anymore. And you can see it in the streets. So, but yet we still have these concepts in our minds and our hearts. They're in our, every religion. They're in the Quran. They're in the Bible. They're in the Vedas. You know, whatever anybody might have. But we've lost the sense of where we're at because capitalism distorts everything, including these big churches, as you know, including the big institutions. All of them are in crisis. As capitalism crisis, every institution, every school, every, they're all in crisis as well. And so I think bringing in the indigenous cosmology or cosmovision isn't to say that we're better than anybody. It just means there's some basic things, essential things in there that helps us. And as you know, black people in this country have indigenous roots too. There was a lot of intermarriage with indigenous people, with the Seminole, with other tribes. There was the Red Shirt Rebellion of black and indigenous people uh, against racism in the 1800s. There's so much history. Um, so we're all bound with each other in this country. There's no way that we could say anybody it belongs here more than anybody else. But being bound, we need to work really closely for the essential uh, things, uh, the essential issues and essential, you know, thinking that we need to have. When you when you talk about this third route or the, you know, the black presence mm -hmm. in Mexico, uh, both pre-Columbus and post-Columbus, I wonder how the awareness of that is in the Chicano, Latino, and Mexican communities, because we 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 do encounter some anti-blackness there, and it you know, oh, yeah. and I wonder you know, and and I've had people challenge me on the air. Do what is the trajectory of understanding uh, for for of this history in the Latino community? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's why we have the Etruscan group. By the way. Mm. It's a bookstore with about that kind of knowledge, the pre-knowledge, the port knowledge, the key transformative knowledge. Uh, we have a bookstore. We have readings. We have dialogues. We bring in elders from Mexico. We bring in elders from here in the United States. We uh, we talk about these issues. 
And in the February, you can get to Selmar. It's a beautiful space. There's murals. There's books everywhere. There's art gallery. We're the only bookstore, art gallery, and comprehensive culture center for half a million people in the Northeast San Fernando Valley. There's no other place. That's amazing. There's no bookstores. I know. It's just crazy in L.A. Um, you can get, like I was pointing out, you can get a gun in those neighborhoods. You can get drugs. You can buy liquor anywhere. There's liquor stores everywhere. But you can't buy a book, and except for us. So I think, it, and that's a place where we explore, like you're pointing out, all these things. The African um, place in this land, which goes very deep, as you're pointing out, uh, and the connections with other indigenous peoples. Uh, they were actually integrated. They were all integrated. It wasn't uh, black people were here, and then there was other indigenous people. They all integrated together. And then the Spanish come and uh, bring in slaves and now bring in more problems. Because they bring in the caste system, you know, and at the very bottom were black and indigenous people. At the very top were the white Spanish people, and they, they brought it was part of the law. They made it law, just like the U.S. made slavery and other things law. So yeah, I think you're right. We have a lot to learn. Places like the Achutas, we're not the only ones, but obviously we need more. Are places to explore and get the books and get that knowledge. When you um. I know you've been clocking uh, the the man I call he who shall not be named, the former president of the United States. His um, escalation, I guess, in anti-immigrant um, rhetoric um, yeah, and, yeah. and his expansion, really, of not just targeting Mexico, but this last rant that he did in Vegas targeting right. uh, Asian, African countries, saying it's poisoning yes. the blood of our country. How do you read that? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the only reason, one thing that, that guy who went up in me. One thing about what he does, he's tapping into a sentiment that's very strong in this country that may not be the majority of the people, but he's making it more cohesive. That sentiment is getting cohered. Mm. Uh, the rest of us are getting thrown for a loop. They're cohering themselves, as you know. This um, anti-wokeness, all this stuff is a coherence of them. Their numbers are small, but their numbers can be powerful if they get out, they get the votes or even undermine the votes, which is what they do. They want power and they want control, and they're serious. They will be a dictatorship. They even said he would do it. He said he'd do it for a day, but you know what? For him, there's no day. Uh, <laughs> they want to, you know. For him, there's they no want day. To control. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. And, 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 and can and you Trump imagine that, that guy backing off of power? Like if he had it for a day no. and then he'd relinquish it? <laughs> That's a fairy no, tale. He won't do it. Yeah. But he's letting us know ahead of time. And, and, and people have told me, well, why would he keep talking this stuff when he didn't win these elections? He's not going to win. Says they're cohering a, a, a very powerful section of this country. White supremacy and even the, the few black and brown people that go along with it. There's a few that are going along with it. They're cohering them because they want the power. They know the rest of us moderate and liberal progressives, whatever we might be, are fragmented. You know, we're all over the place. And Do you so agree? They know what they're doing. It, you know. Do you agree, Luis? Yeah. Um, uh, Tavis finally has a friend, Ruben Navarrete. He's a conservative Latino columnist. He's always on with Tavis. Yeah. And he makes the argument, and I've seen some polling, that Latinos are moving to the right. This Particularly Mexican-Americans are embracing Trump um, and the Republican Party. Do you agree with that? Well, well, I think they're looking at it like cherry picking. 
the vast majority of Latinos, and I'm talking about all of them, Mexico, Central American, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, wherever they may be from, are voting still liberal, Democrat, progressive. The vast majority. Yes, there's movement, and I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from uh, evangelical right-wing churches. I'm not talking about evangelical mm-hmm. Christians. I know a lot of them mm-hmm. are really good. But the right-wing churches have really had an exponential growth among Latinos. And this includes Puerto Ricans, where I lived in the Puerto Rican neighborhood of Chicago for 15 years. It includes a lot of Mexicans, especially in Texas. It includes, of course, the Cubans and others in Miami. It includes a lot of people. They're moving towards the evangelical right-wing section of that church. And they're moving that population towards Trump, towards the Republican Party. That is what's happening that nobody's talking about. Because Texas is not a monolith either when it comes to Latinos. But there is a movement among these evangelicals. They're very strong, and they control a lot of people's minds and spirits, if you might, if you want to put it out that and, way. And, and, this, my, this is, yeah, yeah. and my impression is similar to our press. Many of these big uh, Latino outlets are owned by more conservative, uh, wealthy that, folks, too. Yeah. yeah, Univision, who was the largest and had a really good presence, is now moving to, definitely towards that direction. They interviewed Trump without, without giving him any hard questions. Well, no, no hard bothering, just interview him recently. And it's like, what's going on here? Well, these conservative Latinos have controlled the media. And Mirovision is important. It's the one Spanish national, it's that traditional Spanish language media. And now it's being controlled by these conservatives. So this is the power of the cohering that I'm talking about. They're not even cohering just on white people. They're cohering around that politics, that right wing, and I would have to say fascist politics, that they're all moving towards. And even with all the losses, they keep going because they're not going to give up. They want to eventually have that country that they control and its power and the caste system begins to be more out there again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Luis J. Rodriguez. Uh, you can check out, if you know, like he said, if you go to Silmar or go online, tiachucha.com, T-I-A-C-H-U-C-H-A.com. It's a rich resource of creativity and resistance. Continuing with Luis when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Your ancestors' favorite radio station. Radio station. And your favorite morning show host. Let's get back to Dominique DePrima right now. Right now. Right now, um, we're talking with Luis J. Rodriguez. And Luis, you're getting love in the YouTube chat room. Um, oh, cool. It's KBLA 1580 on YouTube where we're streaming, and people are happy that you're on the show this morning. So I love, love, love to hear that. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like we're moving in, in at the risk of sounding hyperbolic toward fascism. I mean, as you say, right, Trump yeah. is admitted to being a dictator day one. Um, some of the ch- changes in, in governance that he's outlined and his uh, fixation with revenge um, really right. don't bode well. Now we, there's some new polling out today that finds that uh, Biden once again is trailing Trump by two points in this latest um, polling that shows that there's a, the U.S., you know, people are disapprove of the way that the Biden administration is handling the situation in Gaza. Uh, this is a New York Times yeah. Siena College poll. Yeah, It's most stark with younger Americans. I've been saying that because I, I 
just know. I know young people. I'm, I'm on social media. Right. Um, and it is. But the thing that freaks me out, I think that my personal opinion is that Gaza is going to cost Biden this election. The thing that freaks me out, according to this polling, though, is that younger voters are angry at Biden about his um, his moves in the Middle East, but they're moving to Trump. That their solution is they think Trump would handle it better than Biden. And I, what? Where is the logic? Yeah, well, that's there's no on the rest of us. There's no coherency on our end. Right. You know what I'm saying? So they're all over the place. They they know what they're doing. They cohere, cohere. They have to consolidate themselves, and they're doing very well. And they'll bring in black and brown people if they can. Uh, the other end of it is not being coherent, and this is a shame. There is no party. There is no central progressive grouping out there that anybody can jump to. It's all been fragmented. So you and me, our voices and others that can write and speak, we have to keep bringing this knowledge and understanding. Like, for example, I don't like Biden. I'm not a Democrat. You know, I'm a, I, I don't. But strategically, I'm going to vote for Biden. Now, people are going to think that's kind of weird. I think Biden is messed up around Gaza. What the Democrats should do is not have Biden be the presidential candidate. That's what they should do. They had, they're not, who knows what they're going to do. The only reason I would vote for him is a strategic thing. We can't let Trump come back. And I would tell everybody, because abortion is also a big issue. They're, they're using that to consolidate themselves. Most people want choice. Most people. But it doesn't matter. They're consolidating that so-called pro-life grouping. So what I would say is strategically, let's make sure Trump doesn't come back. The voting, get out there. Get out there and make sure, even if you're a revolution, even if you hate the voting booth, because there's other things that we can do to teach, organize, and build uh, to move everything forward. But if we start fragmented and start saying, well, I'm not going to vote, I'm going to be the anti-system vote, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to participate. Trump knows this, you know. Trump and all these people, they know that. They know that all of us, Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, Chicano peoples, uh, all of us that we're all sitting here stewing, and some of us are uniting, but the rest of us are quite are going against each other. Um, they know all that, and they're going to come in. That's what happened with Hitler. So happened, you, know, they, you, you read what happened, what he did. They're following the blueprint. You know, Mussolini did it, you know. Um, so I would say it's a strategy. I'm going to vote for, for Biden. I don't like the guy. I think the Biden's make a terrible mistake. And you're right. This, this might, he might lose it just on this alone and God yeah. other stuff. But the point is, we can't let Trump come in. We can't just pretend that these things are, uh, we have agency. But my agency also says I'm going to be critical of all those Democrats. I'm going to be critical of Biden. I'm going to be critical of that system. But I don't want these fascists coming in. And Biden has tendencies to that, but he's not really the fascist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and just to be strategic about what we do. Black, brown people, progressive people, white people, Jewish communities that, that are gravitating around the issues we're about. I'm all for all of us making sure we have strategy in our thinking and hopefully give, organizing and building. Because that's what we don't really do very well right now. I didn't, don't do as much as we should. Absolutely. Not as much as we do. Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I, you know, I understand what you're saying about being strategic. 
Um, I'm just wondering how do we turn this around? If young people are saying, I voted for Biden last time, but um, I don't want to vote for him because of what he's doing in Gaza. So my solution is to go to Trump. That's something right. that is something that needs to be addressed. And I'm not and I know you work a lot with right. young people. and I'm not quite sure how to address it. No, I think that's part of my job, our job uh, with the Achuchas and where I speaking all over the place. Uh, I go around the country. I just came back from Mexico City. I've tried to raise these issues as best I can because I think that's what it is. Knowledge is freedom. The more we know, the more we owe. And I think that, uh, that that's one area of where I can battle whatever situation is going on. I'm not going to go up and start beating people down or nothing. I'm not going to yell and scream at nobody. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to put anybody down. But I do, I do feel like as older I am, and I guess you, all of us, growing up in that next generation, um, we got to keep struggling and we got to keep giving people the knowledge and awareness, as respectful as we can. But we got to keep teaching people. That's a strategy when somebody says, "I'm going to vote for Trump because I can't stand Biden." Right. It's a strategy. So we got to give them other strategies. And again, I don't like Biden. I didn't like him the last time, you know. But there's, you got to look at the whole. We got to have a perspective, the whole picture. It's macro and micro at the same time. We can do that. You know what I mean? Uh, if the Democrats were smart, they would not let Biden be the presidential candidate. Yeah. It's, Hopefully yeah. pick somebody else that people can gravitate around. But, but that's highly, I mean, I agree, that's, actually. Yeah, it's but it's highly unusual. It would be highly unusual for that to happen. Yeah, it's, it's just not, not how happen. it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sure. And and I think part of the resistance to Biden on the right is folks in, in the so-called centers, people you know, are afraid of a president Kamala Harris. Um, I'm not. I actually <laughs> would consider no, I'm that not. I'm not. an no, upgrade. But um, and I'm crit- I'm critical of her too. But she's yeah. not. You got to put it in perspective. She's nothing compared to what we're talking about. She's nothing compared to a Trump. No way. She's got issues that she should be criticized. But man, I'd rather have her any day. You know what I'm saying? In other words, you got to put it all in perspective. She's not the perfect candidate. There is no perfect candidate. We gotta have this idea that there is no perfect way to go, but there is a there is progress. There's not perfection, but there's progress, and we have to think about what those strategies and tactics would be that will keep us moving forward, even if they're incremental. But then also there'll be leaps, but move forward versus standing still or going backward. Yeah. Um, we just got a couple minutes here. I know that you are, you know, very tied into your indigenous roots and uh, the practices of of your ancestors. Um, and we are seeing, you know, a lot of natural disasters. I don't know if you if you put meaning on those or if you think it's just a regular um, way of life. A volcano erupted in in uh, Iceland uh, after all these earthquakes and. Thousands of people evacuated. I feel like, you know, we're, we're seeing not just the climate crisis, but whatever, um, you know, regular everyday disasters um, seem seem to be uh, abundant. Do you put anything on that or do you say that's just a nat- natural cycle of life? Well, you know, it's both. It's a natural cycle of life, but also there's a spirit in the world. At least indigenous people feel that way. And that spirit has been rocked, has been forgotten has been pushed aside and has been not treated very well. I think that's part of that is also going on. I just like the spirit within us, we explode, we lose it. We, you know, within us, our own spirit is not happy. The house that we have is falling down around us. And so I think that the world also has a world behind it. And that world is also struggling and letting us know. Uh, 
I do think it's also part, of course, you can look at it scientifically how all these things happen. But I also, as a spiritual person, and I'm not a church person, I'm not an institution person, I'm talking about the essential spirit, is that everything has a spirit. And we look at the spirits are being uh, responding to what we're doing in this world. This is why we wake up. This is why we end up doing what we try to do to go back to be in accord with nature and the spirit of things. Well, it's always great to talk to you, Luis. You can you can find Thank him you. at luisjrodriguez.com or tiachucha.com. And uh, you're on social media too, right? Yeah, and it's tiachucha.org. Oh, yeah, dot org. And I'm on social media. So I'm on Instagram, you know, YouTube. Look my name, Luis J. Rodriguez in general. I have handles. But just look for me, uh, all that stuff. I'm, I'm in there as well. Well, it's always great to talk with you, Luis. Thanks for making time for us this morning. Thank you, Dominique. Always my pleasure. Thank you.